0: Hello and welcome to PopCast, a new podcast series from Eventbrite. Every month we'll be chatting with promoters, festival owners, and venue directors to hear what they have to say about the latest trends in the industry and their advice for you. Consider your guide to what's popping off in the live music industry with the people behind it. Today we're talking to Tom Russell of Governor's Ball Music Festival about how consolidation has changed talent booking, how they started and scaled a music festival in the new market, and more. Thank you for joining. My name is Brett Andres, and I'm an account manager here at Eventbrite on our music team. joined today with Tom Russell from Founders Entertainment. Hello, hello. Well, yeah, Tom, I guess just to start here, you want to start with just a quick
1: intro and background on yourself? Sure. I'm Tom Russell with Founders Entertainment. I'm one of the three partners of the company, and we are in charge of producing and promoting the Governor's Ball Music Festival in New York City. And we also were involved with the Farmborough Festival, which was actually recently canceled. And we do a number of other things for hire, whether it's booking for hire, marketing, consulting, etc. But really we are a full service music and concert promotion and production company. I've been in the industry for a little over ten years. Got my feet wet working at Superfly Productions out of college and left there in about six years ago. To start founders, really, with the goal of bringing my hometown of New York City, large-scale music festival. So that's kind of the short, <laughs> short version of my background.
0: All right, that's great. Well, yeah, let's go back in time a little bit to your Superfly days. What you know inspired you guys to get together, uh, you Yoni Jordan, to to start Governor's Ball?
1: Really, each of us were at a unique place in our careers. We were each. Somewhere where we weren't really learning anything and we weren't advancing, and we each felt like we had hit our ceilings at our respective companies. And we were all good friends to start, and you know, just keeping in touch and talking with one another, it seemed like we we're all in a, in a similar boat, and we all had talked individually about starting our own company. You know, everybody always talks about, oh, I should go work for myself one day. That's that's the goal. But it just, it either never happens or just takes a long time. And it seemed like we were all in a, a very similar place. And around that time that we were having those conversations, we saw that the music festival landscape was really taking off. And we saw that the New York City music festival landscape was evolving. All Points West was a major festival that took place in Jersey City. And it had just stopped happening because of poor performance. And, you know, these other festivals around the country were coming out and, and doing rather well, whether it was Bonnaroo or Lollapalooza, Coachella, Outside Lands. We saw that it was being successful, that the music festival model was successful in all these other markets, but it wasn't happening in New York. And, you know, we looked at all of them and we said, you know, we identified what could make the, the festival successful, and you know we decided that there was a void in the New York City market and that we would fill that void our goal was always to do a major music festival like it is today you know a 3-day four-stage 66 band festival but because New York City is such a tricky market and because you know we didn't want to risk you know 10 million dollars the first year we decided to start small and do proof of concept and we did a one-day event with 12 bands and we decided to, to really hone in on a, a subgenre, if you will, that we thought was popular and underserviced. And that was kind of indie electronic. You know, it wasn't the uns music that's Tiesto and Paul Van Dyke, it was more kind of melodic indie electronic like Empire of the Sun and Pretty Lights, Girl Talk, uh, et cetera. So it was a strategic risk, if you will. You know, we saw a void and we just um, kind of hopped on it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that was back in 2011. And you guys pulled this off in about six months, correct?
1: Yeah, we were secretly working on the festival when we were finishing uh, at our previous jobs. Um, so there was a little bit of moonlighting going on. But we pieced it together really quickly. And and we were able to do that by really leveraging relationships that we had Um I had met a large number of people working at Superfly and I leveraged those relationships as much as I could to get deals done quickly. Uh, My business partner, Jordan, was able to leverage his Rolodex from being in the booking agency world um, to book bands quickly. And, you know, we were able to just take advantage of those relationships and, and make it happen in a really quick amount of time.
0: Yeah, that's great. So, you know, you mentioned that your, your goal was to start small and, you know, turn it into this large music festival that it's become today. How quickly did you expect to, to get where you are and how did those goals kind of evolve over, over the years?
1: We always knew that New York City needed and could sustain a large scale music festival. But when we started, we thought it was a great idea. And then the day before we went on sale, we all kind of huddled up and said, Shit, is, is this gonna work? We really hope it's gonna work because our our asses are on the line. And the tickets sold and, you know, we were successful. And I think from there we just wanted to slowly but surely inch toward that that model that we always wanted to be. So we came back in two thousand and twelve and we added a day. We switched venues so we could sell more tickets. That was successful. And then in 2013 we added a third day and we added two stages and you know we became that major model that major festival model that we always wanted to be so it was a gradual step and i think you know once people were buying tickets and they were coming to the event and having a great time and on social media talking about how great the festival was and how New York City needed this sort of thing, you know, we all kind of realized that, you know, we accomplished our goal and, you know, we were giving people what they wanted and, and giving New York City a, a festival they can call their own.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you guys are coming up on your, your sixth year of, of Governor's Ball and you've obviously been in, in the industry for quite some time before that. Uh, what are the biggest changes you've seen in the industry over this time?
1: There's certainly been a, a large amount of consolidation with Live Nation and AEG and SFX purchasing a lot of festivals, a lot of local promoters. It's been really interesting to see how talent booking and just general marketing strategy has changed with all of these acquisitions. There's been that, and then there's just been a lot more competition because you know music festivals are incredibly popular amongst millennials, and you have sponsors wanting to take part in music festivals, and you have promoters that are putting them on to get those sponsorship deals. And there's just a lot more opportunities for bands to play and a lot more opportunities for consumers to see music. So trying to position ourselves in a way that you know, folks choose us over others uh, continues to get more and more challenging. And we have to continue to provide an A-plus roster of bands and provide an A-plus experience. And you know, if we ever falter on that, you know, we're going to see it in ticket sales. I think there are some festivals that will sell out the day of the on sale every year. It's my goal to, to get to that point. But, you know, being in a market like New York City, uh, where there's so much to do, and being in a time where there are so many music festivals all across the country and the world, and people have so much to choose from, I'm not sure we'll get there anytime soon. I think, you know, we'll always be, I think we'll always sell out. Um, I just think it'll be closer to the actual day just because there's just, there's a lot out there. And how we can differentiate ourselves, that's that's kind of what we have to um, identify and, and nail.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Going back to the consolidation of the industry, how has that impacted what you guys do and kind of your approach to the festival every year?
1: It somewhat remains to be seen. You know, the thing that scares me the most personally is how the consolidation is going to affect talent buying. Um, you saw it this year with AEG and what they did um, with Coachella and the new event that they're going to announce, Panorama, um, they started packaging offers. So they would send an offer to a band and say, um, you know, here's an offer for two weekends of Coachella and one weekend of our new festival in New York called Panorama. And if you don't play the Panorama Festival, then you can't play Coachella. So they're leveraging their very profitable, very successful, very desirable asset to launch um, another festival and have that festival um, have great talent. It's very smart, smart business, um, but it's something that only bigger companies are able to do because they have assets to, to leverage. I think that with AEG and Live Nation kind of having an arms race, if you will, they're going to start block booking more and more and getting the, the talent, especially the headliner talent, is going to become more and more competitive and more and more difficult, I think. Um, that only happened with a, a few acts this year, but I think that's the direction it's going in. And I think it's going to be very, very competitive. And ultimately, you know, the consumer wants to see, you know, the biggest and best bands. And if they're locked up by a massive, a massive deal, you know, the, the artist is going to go with that deal. And, you know, the other promoters are kind of shit out of luck. So that's kind of the, a big difference or shift that I see that, that could happen. And with the consolidation comes exclusivity deals, whether it's ticketing exclusivity or, you know, talent exclusivity or sponsorship exclusivity. It's really, really interesting times and uh, curious to see where it goes.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, you know, with this competitive landscape, new festivals popping up and. Um, you know, Live Nation, AEGs, buying up a lot of kind of those, those headliners with those exclusive deals. You mentioned, you know, differentiation is important. And so outside of the actual lineup, how are you guys trying to differentiate yourself from, from other festivals around the world?
1: Well, it's a great question. And I, it's something that we ask ourselves every year because to start, the only thing that really differentiated us from other festivals was the fact that we were in New York City. We were the only major music festival in New York City, the only festival that had four stages and featured bands of all genres, had 50,000 people, and that festival atmosphere. Um, and that was really it. And you know, we're in a very unique venue, which is Randall's Island, um, but there's nothing really else that, that differentiates us. Um, so we've, we've somewhat struggled to, to figure out what else can we do to differentiate us we have a very limited amount of time to build our site on Randall's Island because it is a New York City park, and it's a very desirable New York City park. So we don't have the months that other festivals have to build their site, um, and because of that, we can't build massive art installations that are insane. Uh, we just don't have that time. So you know, we've started to think about what else can we do, whether it's pop up performances or pranks on the attendees or buskers, you know, visual artists. What else can we do to make the experience more unique that could differentiate us from others? Now, we're never going to have the art or the visual design that you'll see at Burning Man. But if we can have a, a great mix of A plus talent with unique visual design and and buskers and performing artists and cool New York City artwork and great New York City food, we think that um, the product itself is is good enough. And Maybe we don't have to differentiate ourselves from you know other big festivals as long as we have an A plus product whether it's A plus music A plus food A plus art um, A plus experience it's gonna it's gonna sell itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You guys have done a great job of um, building you know building up your brand in New York City and uh, certainly that that's worth a lot. Trying. So shifting gears a little bit, kind of want to talk about technology and how you've seen that change in the the festival landscape over the years.
1: It's a good question because it keeps on getting more and more unique. RFID certainly has become the standard at music festivals in the States, and we integrate RFID technology more and more each year. We started using RFID in 2014 with our VIP program. And then in 2015, we used it with everything. This year, in 2016, we're going to be using RFID for all VIP and GA ticket holders. And we're also going to be integrating a cashless program where people can link up their credit card in their RFID wristband and then pay by just scanning their wristband at any point of purchase. And, you know, with technology getting more and more powerful, it allows the consumer to spend money in a much easier fashion, which is great for the promoter because it's just going to mean more dollars in your pocket. And ultimately, it's just kind of an easier and better experience. As somebody who's in charge of operations, I hate to see a long line. Um, It actually drives me crazy. I think it's like the New York City in me as well. So if there's anything we can do to alleviate those lines and alleviate wait times, we're going to want to do. And with things like RFID technology, allowing people to make a quicker and faster transaction that's going to result in shorter lines. People are going to get whatever they're waiting for in a quicker amount of time, and it's just going to result in a better experience for everybody. Additionally, I think that a direction that every technology company is going in, and I have no idea how this is going to change things, but is virtual reality. With, with virtual reality becoming you know, really popular amongst the Apples of the world, the Samsungs of the world, and really just starting to become something that people can purchase and have in their homes, I'm curious to see how the festival experience is going to integrate with, with virtual reality, whether that's sponsorship activations on-site at the festival that have um, VR technology, or whether people are going to have access to a festival environment via their at-home VR console. Is that going to affect ticket sales? Is that going to be powerful enough for people won't go to a festival because they can experience a festival in the comfort of their own home. I have no idea. But it's really interesting, and there's a lot of money being pumped into that sort of experience. And uh, I think it's going to get really, really interesting just for the consumer and, and the promoter and how they, how they balance that technology.
0: Yeah, it's definitely kind of wild to, to think about just sitting on, on your couch at home with a headset on and being at Governor's Ball on Randall's Island, you know, watching Drake perform in front of 50,000 people.
1: Well, there was, um, like, in the new season of Portlandia, in the very first episode, it was all about a music festival, and um, the the two main characters, they have a VR headset that they can put on, and it's connected to a drone that goes to this nearby music festival, and they're able to experience the music festival by operating this drone. And it's so silly and ridiculous. But that's kind of like where we're going. And it's as lame as you think it is, it's to be able to like use your own bathroom and cook your own food and like have like the comfort of home. But also be able to get that like energy that you would get from a festival. It's pretty wild.
0: Yeah, real wild. Kind of scary, but um...
1: totally frightening and weird. But, uh, you know. I'm down to try it.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, you know, you mentioned earlier with uh, Farmboro getting canceled this year. You know, are you guys looking to add on any additional events in the future as Founders Entertainment or looking at any other markets?
1: Absolutely. We always wanted to do a fall festival in New York City. We've always thought that the city could handle two, if not more, music festivals, especially when you look at markets like Chicago and London, which sustain dozens of music festivals. We've always thought that bookending events would just be smart. So having an event at the beginning of June and having an event in the middle to end of September. There's different bands routing during those times of year. There's different people in the cities and it's a, a different vibe, a different type of event. So we've been working toward that for a couple of years now and, you know, working tirelessly to, uh, to make something happen there. So our goal is to add a second event in New York City at some point in the near future and then see what else we can do in nearby markets in the Northeast such as Boston and Philadelphia. We are still an independent company and we're internally financed and internally operated. So we're very careful how we risk our money. These things are such high risk, high reward ventures that if we make one misstep on a new event, it could bankrupt our entire business. So we have to be really, really careful um, how we grow. So it, it's one of the reasons why you know, we're a six-year-old company, but we only have two assets. It's because we don't have the bottomless cash flow that you see these other companies seem to have. we got to be careful, but the goal is to eventually grow to a five or six-asset company and be able to do a number of unique events and super key markets and have each experience be different and and unique in their own regard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, being an an independent promoter, what advantages is that giving you in the current kind of landscape right now?
1: Well, One thing is we can make a decision and move on it really, really quickly. A lot of times when you're a big company, you have to get sign-offs from a number of different people. Sometimes those people aren't easy to access. A lot of times there's conflicting viewpoints. It just takes a while to get things done. When you're an independent promoter, you're able to make a call and act on it almost immediately. And, you know, sometimes if you are a bigger company or you're publicly traded, there's certain things that you just can't do. Cause maybe it's not the best and, you know, public facing thing to do. But when you are independent and you can be scrappy as fuck, and that's gonna help you get ahead of somebody else, sometimes you gotta just do that. And, you know, the the concert promoting business is it's freaking tough and there are a lot of dicks out there and sometimes you got to just roll your sleeves up and do certain things to um protect your bottom line and you know ultimately it's fair game you know so uh, when you're independent, you can do that without having to uh, follow necessarily like a larger company's rules and regulations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, yeah, to wrap up here, I guess, you know, what's one thing that you have learned over the last few years that you could go back and tell Tom Russell back in 2003 at Tulane, you know, in terms of promoting and, and putting on music festivals?
1: The one thing I'll say is that, you know, I've made, we've made a number of mistakes over the past six years, but each of those mistakes were such valuable learning experiences. That one might say it's like the best way to learn is to fail or to make a mistake because like you see exactly what you did wrong, you know exactly how to fix it. And sometimes you just don't really understand something unless you you fail at it or you give it a try and it doesn't work out. You know, I think the, a big thing is just making sure that you invest heavily in the people that you hire and the people that you work with. Sometimes, you know, a lawyer or an accountant or a production manager or a site manager or an employee will seem really expensive, but they're worth it. You know they're paid that for a reason, and you want your team to be as good as it possibly can be. And if you continue to invest in your company and your personnel, the product that company and that personnel puts out will be on that high level that you know you're you're, you're achieving to be on. So I'd say just don't be afraid to invest in your company and your people and in your event experience if if you are an event promoter and just don't be afraid to fail and sometimes you need to fail to figure out
0: (laughs) (laughs) which direction to go exactly (laughs) yeah well that's some great advice there thanks a lot for your time today tom i think you've given myself certainly and, and hopefully our listeners a lot to think about so really appreciate you taking the time happy to help all right take care tom Join us next month for the next episode of Popcast featuring Rami and Jacob, Popgun Presents, in Elsewhere Brooklyn, one of New York's hottest music rooms. You'll hear how they book and promoted upwards of 40 shows a month and which artists are about to hit it big.